the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Everyone sees Christmas as this glorious time to celebrate. And we do. We celebrate the birth of our Savior. Ah, but this week, this week, we celebrate why he was born. That's this week on Way of Grace. Join us. From Grace Bible Church here in Hayward, online at grace-bible.com. Hi there, and welcome to our special week-long edition of our Easter message, simply entitled, The Risen Lord Testified. We invite you to join us today as we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15 and turn our attention to this resurrection, the Father's Amen, to the Son's It Is Finished. That's the empty tomb. Let's explore it together, shall we? All week this week. Here's Pastor Jessica Stand with today's broadcast of Way of Grace. The risen Lord testified. And the way I kind of want to uh, develop that is to just basically say the risen Lord according to the apostolic testimony. Eight simple verses in front of us that I want us to consider in their richness. Eight verses that really, when you examine them, were a, a kind of framework of a hymnic expression on the part of the apostles. Peter framed it this way. Paul frames it here in 1 Corinthians. And you'll see in a little bit, he does it again in Acts chapter 13. It seemed like in the first century, the fundamental thing that the apostles did was to regale the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. So the priority of the gospel message that you and I preach, again, we're, we're, we're concluding our celebration of the cross work of God's ox, Jesus Christ, which we looked at on Friday. But now what we want to do is affirm his resurrection, which clearly took place, as he stated so many times, on the third day. Christ's atonement accomplished at Calvary by his death is what we call the cornerstone of the gospel. The cornerstone. The cornerstone is that initial stone that's laid by which the building is built. Without the cornerstone of Christ's accomplished redemption, you and I have absolutely no guarantee of life. He died for our sins. Those are the five words that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I'd rather speak five words with an understanding than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Well, here they are. Christ died for our sins. Clear enough? We're going to be looking at that here in the structure, but I want to give you five more words. And he rose again. Christ rose again from the dead, right along with having died 
for our sins, saints of the living God. And when we think about the resurrection of Christ, we are thinking about what I call the capstone of the, of the atoning work of Jesus. If, if his death is the cornerstone, then his resurrection is the capstone. And what that means is his resurrection seals the deal. It affirms the reality that all that God had said about Christ for all the years prior to his coming was true. And this is what excites the apostles and excites the early church. And it even excited the angels. Go tell his brother brethren, that he is not here for he has risen. And I really want that to resonate in your heart, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was such a powerful testimony that the apostle Paul called the resurrection of the dead, the hope of Israel. If you look at Acts 24, verse 14, this is what it says. Paul dealing with his first, what we would call defense of the gospel before Agrippa and before Felix. This is what he says. He says in Acts chapter 24, verse 14, that all I have done was preached all that the prophets and the law have declared concerning Jesus and concerning our hope, which is the resurrection from the dead. Listen to how he puts it. But this I confess unto you that after the way in which they call heresy, so worship I uh, the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. We're going to touch on that in a minute. Notice what he says in the next verse, 25, and have hope towards God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be what? a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Children of God, our celebration today is around the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection of Christ secures our resurrection. It secures the reality that you and I have new life in God, new life in Christ, and their hope is our hope as well. The hope of sinners has to be the hope of the resurrection. I mean, think about the life that you and I live presently. Even in faith, our world is full of trouble. Our lives are riddled with pain. Those of you who are older, you know this. We deal with the struggles of what we call the devolving nature of sin. We're losing our memory and we are losing our physical faculties in many ways. Diseases set in, does it not? And yet we live in the hope of the resurrection because one day, because of what Jesus did in his death on the cross, you and I will have total newness of life. Yes, we believe right now and we walk in a kind of newness of life, but isn't that newness of life a kind of hope? In one day, things becoming perfect. This is how Peter puts it. First Peter chapter one, verse three. He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath made us alive again unto what? Unto a resurrection, having begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mark what the apostle says. We've been born again in order to hope. We've been born again in order to hope. He calls our hope a living hope. The unbeliever doesn't have this hope. The unregenerate man doesn't know this hope. But this hope is in the person of the Lord Jesus. And if Christ is in you, the hope of glory, you have this hope too. What that means is, is when we talk about the resurrection of Christ, we are talking about a glorious, glorious reality that God himself has talked about through all the pages of scripture. Daniel 12, 
verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. Listen to how Daniel said it. And of course, over the years, I've had the opportunity now to preach on the resurrection of Christ since we started this ministry. Let's do the numbers. If we've been in ministry for 24 years, then at least 24 times have I talked about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And again, every year that we have an opportunity to remember his death, as we do in the table, and we'll share that again today. And every year we get a chance to remember the resurrection of our Lord. We get a chance to look at the broad scope of scriptures, expression and statements about the resurrection. You and I get to see the resurrection in types and in pictures and in patterns all through the Old Testament. Those old examples of the resurrection, hither and yon, we preached on them, have taught on them many, many times. You can never, ever exhaust biblical theology around the concept of the resurrection. And neither can your mind or mine really get a grip on the enormity of this idea of the resurrection. So as we are looking at the resurrection today, what I want you to think about is the magnitude of it laid out in the word of God. Again, I'm bringing you back to Friday's study along these lines. That your Bible is filled with levels of richness and treasures of truth that can never be exhausted. But whenever you and I take up any of the subjects of our Lord's person and work, they can take us so deep and nurture our souls so fully that it it raises our level of appreciation for what he did for us in pain for our sins. The subject of the resurrection is is so vast that you and I could not possibly drink it in totally in an hour. But what I want to do is just give you a little bit of a taste of what I am calling the risen Lord according to apostolic witness. The risen Lord according to apostolic witness. Now, this is quite fascinating. We are in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, the Apostle Paul has been laboring with this motley crew of Corinthians for 15 chapters. And you and I know that the reason he wrote that epistle to them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, is because they have been invaded by heresy and false doctrine and levels of sinful disobedience that merited the Apostles' urgent writing to them. I mean, if you and I were to enumerate from chapter one all the way to chapter 14, all the things that the Corinthians were stumbling and and bumbling over and falling into. I mean, the way the first couple of chapters opens up, the Apostle Paul has to talk about how that Christ cannot be divided in chapter one, verses 10 through 12. Did Did Apollos die for you? Did Cephas die for you? Did Cephas rise again for you? No, it was Christ that died. It was Christ that rose again. The church at Corinth was struggling with whether or not there's even efficacy in the gospel. I mean, the opening chapters, Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I am determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And that's because the Corinthian church had all of your highfalutin Stoics there, all of your Epicureans, all of your philosophers, all of your wise, what we would call or. Uh, Uh, orators who were skillful at rhetoric, and they were being distracted from what we call the simplicity of the gospel. Think about it with me. The Apostle Paul working from chapter one to chapter two, 
And in chapter two, you recall what he says. He says, if the princes of this world had known this mystery of the God man and his humility and his suffering for our sin, they would have never crucified the prince of glory. And remember what he said in first Corinthians chapter three. He says, listen, now some build upon this foundation with wood, hay and stubble. Others with gold, silver and precious stone. Be very careful. Those who seek to defile the house of God, Christ himself will destroy. And from chapter four onwards, you remember chapter five is about just a kind of rank adultery between a man and his father's wife. In chapter six, they had engaged in what we call the the antinomianism of, you know, Christ died for my sins, so I'm free to do whatever I want to do. And Paul said, no, you're not free to do whatever you want to do. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not everything is edifying. In other words, they had a false grace that lost discernment on the foundation of that grace, which is the righteousness of God. God has saved us and liberated us unto righteousness. We used to be free to sin. Now we're free to obey God. Then we moved into chapter seven and you know, chapter seven was laying out that you and I to put away every form of the filth of the flesh and mature in holiness before God simply because we are the temple of the living God. And then we get to chapter eight and Paul said in chapter eight, he says, listen, now everyone has knowledge all kind of acquisition of biblical data and and secular data and people walk around all puffed up knowing things. He says, knowledge puffs up, but it's love that edifies, that builds up. So he's helping the church at Corinth get the concept of you have lost your way. And then we get to chapter nine, where the apostle Paul is talking about the importance of understanding the gospel and not getting trapped by ethnocentric ideas. What did he say? He says, I've become all things to all men that if by any means I might win some. To the Jew, I will respond to them according to the Jewish, if you will, uh, framework or reference of thought that they had concerning Torah and according to law. He says, when I was a Jew, I showed them through Judaism the supremacy of Christ. When I'm with the Gentiles, it's, it's, it's a free game because they didn't know anything about Torah. So it was all about Christ. Didn't have to drop law on them. Didn't have to drop, drop any of the ceremonies. It was just about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then we get to chapter 10 where he warned about be careful that you are not under the false assumption that you're standing on your own. He that thinketh that he is standing is in danger of falling. And we got to chapter 11 which is what we're going to do today in the observance of the Lord's table. And in chapter 11, he says, I hear that around the table of the Lord, there are some of you that are drunk. There's some of you that are dissipated with wine and you've got poor brethren in the congregation who are hungry and you're not even taking care of them. How can your view of the table correspond with your view of the brokenness in the body in the church? And so our, our dear pastor, the apostle Paul is being very pastoral, isn't he? As he deals with all of these problems. But as we go up into the chapters, guess what? He goes from the lesser criminal, sinful behavior patterns of the church at Corinth to the more difficult ones. We get to chapter 12 and now he's talking about what? 
the work of the Spirit of God and the gifts of the church. Remember that? He opened up chapter 12 saying, when you were unsaved, you were led about by those dumb idols and demons that drove you tyrannically into stupid behavior patterns that you didn't know anything about. You were on your way to hell. But when the Holy Ghost came along, he taught you how to say Jesus Christ is Lord. He taught you how to say Jesus is Lord, not in words, but in a lifestyle submitted to the reality of his death, burial, and resurrection. And we learned, didn't we, over this last year about the gifts of the Spirit of God, how that the Father is the operational origin and that the Lord is the uh, executive administrator and that the Spirit of God is the immediate divider of all the gifts. And the gifts are designed for us to see the beauty and splendor and glory of the triune God in the person of Jesus Christ. When all the gifts are working together, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is manifested to the world. That's chapter 12. And then in chapter 13, you know what he laid out for us? He says, you can have every gift in the world and you can employ those gifts with all the fervor and strength you have in the flesh. But if you don't have love, you are nothing. You don't have the love of God running in your heart. And this is what we learned last Sunday, didn't we? In our first introduction to the seven churches of Asia Minor, the church at Ephesus, what did Christ say? You have left your first love. So a man can be immersed in doctrine. He can be eloquent in words. He can be powerful in influence. And before heaven's throne, he is nothing without the love of God pulsing through his veins without the reality of that love of God being completely summed up in the person of Jesus, without the gospel as the framework and thesis of love being the thing by which he defines love. And that love is defined by who Jesus is and what he did. And not only is it defined, it's reflected in the life of the person who is impacted by that love. We love him because he first loved us. That's chapter 13. And then we get to chapter 14 where we've talked about it before. We call it the CEO of chapter 14, clarity. How can the people respond if the trumpet doesn't give a clear sound? Edification. Paul says, I'd rather speak five words with an understanding than 10,000 words in a babbling tongue that no one understands. Edification. And then order. What did Paul say? In the churches, all the churches of God, all of the churches of Christ walk in order. And so they have peace, clarity, edification, and order. He was straightening out a bunch of that pagan confusion, that Babylonian expression of men and women looking like men and men looking like women and and false priests and prostitutes coming in all twisted and perverted and co-mingling the ecstasy of the presence of the spirit with fornication, with the mediatorial work of, of corrupt priests. And Paul said, no. The Holy Ghost doesn't act that way, and he doesn't lead to that kind of abominable Babylonian behavior. That's chapter 14. So we come out of the 14th chapter of dealing with clarity, edification, and order into chapter 15. We are at the pinnacle of Paul's, what I call, pastoral dissertation to the church at Corinth. And wouldn't you know what he's doing in chapter 15? addressing the diabolical opposition of the very claim that establishes the church as a real church, and that is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see how a little leaven can leaven the whole lump? 
You see how if you don't have sound doctrine framing what you believe and how you walk, that you can start off with a little leaven kind of distorting the importance of the gospel, distorting the importance of how we walk in the gospel. And at, at length, you can be, be persuaded to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Well, if you believe that, then where is your hope? This is what we told the early church. And please hear me, saints. If I had time, I'm not going to do it today. But if I had time, here's what you would know. The way the early church preached the gospel through the book of Acts is they started off heralding, celebrating, and lauding. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. That's how they did it. I want you to get this now. When you talk about the risen Lord, And you actually believe it. You sang that he rose from the dead. You sounded out that he rose from the dead. You declare that he laid in the grave, but you sound out he is risen. He is risen. The angels did it with the first witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, and then they did it as well. All you get in the early church are men and women running everywhere all over Jerusalem and Samaria and Judea and the uttermost parts of the Asia Minor region saying Jesus has risen from the dead. And this is where we begin to open up our message today around the message of him rising from the dead. And what Paul does in eight simple words is remind us of the enthusiasm and the passion and the magnificence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to deal with uh, six fundamental points and then an application. The gospel sounded off. The gospel sounded off. That's our first point. The second one, the gospel stood upon. That's our second point. The third point, the gospel saving you. The gospel saving you. Fourthly, the gospel scripturally testified. The gospel scripturally testified. Fifthly, I want to deal with the facts and testimony that he rose again. Sixthly, I want to deal with the gospel seen by many. What I mean by the gospel seen by many is the good news of the gospel by virtue of the resurrection of him who is the epitome of the gospel, the Lord Jesus. And seventhly, I want to deal with what we call this radical love in its application. This radical love in its application. When we talk about the resurrection from the dead, we're not talking about a philosophical resurrection or a theoretical or a symbolic resurrection, not a kind of resurrection that actually denies the reality of the bodily resurrection of Christ. I want to put that out there because many of you, my brothers and sisters, dwell with and you associate with people who are actually within the gray area of theological compromise. Please hear me now. Please hear me now. Your hope in mind for eternity with the Father is based upon a substantial and credible historical fact, not a theory, not a philosophy. Not a kind of social, structural ideology or a mythical kind of, of, you know, uh, kind of resurrection. Not a spiritual resurrection. Not an ideal of a kind of resurrection type. This is the stuff that's present in liberal seminaries and in liberal churches right now where they can use the language of resurrection, but they have no absolute, no allegiance to the historical fact that Christ was the son of the living God and that he rose from the dead. 
In other words, they have horns like a lamb, but they speak like a dragon. And it takes discernment to pick up on the heresy of liberal churches that they will celebrate the Lord's resurrection today. You'll see crosses and you'll see big old robes around the crosses and flowers on the crosses, won't you? Jesus is not there and neither is it an indication of his bodily resurrection. What are they doing? They are darkening counsel by words without knowledge. What are you saying, pastor? Please hear me now. The only reason you and I are saved today is because men and women lived, sang, stood upon, preached, told, declared the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily, and they died for it. And that death and testimony of them believing in the resurrection of Christ is the only reason you and I are saved today. So don't even give a corner to the notion that you can believe in a kind of resurrection a philosophical resurrection, a rhetorical resurrection. He died a real death and he rose a real bodily resurrection. And that is what we want to be able to see as the Apostle Paul asserts it. Well, you have been listening to Way of Grace with Pastor Jesse Gastand from Grace Bible Church here in Hayward. If you have questions or comments about the program, maybe you would like to learn more about us here at Grace Bible Church in Hayward. Reach out to us by simply calling 510-886-9782, or you can visit our website, grace-bible.com. That's grace-bible.com. Sunday services here at the church are 1030 in the morning. Friday evening is our Friday evening Bible study at 6.30. And man, we've got friends of the ministry from all over the Bay Area who join us for this Friday night Bible study. It is an amazing time of God's Word and sweet fellowship in Christ. 6.30 in the evening Tuesdays, our prayer time and a short Bible study as well. These meetings, again, the directions and information of which you can find at our website, grace Bible. Dot com or by calling 510-886-9782. This program continues to air here on this radio station and on the World Wide Web because you partner with us financially and prayerfully. Thank you for your support. No gift is too small. No gift is too large. And you can either give on a monthly basis or it's a one-time gift. It is all tax deductible, and again, the biggest part of your partnership with us is that we get to continue ministering the gospel of grace here in the Bay Area and all over the world. Consider that as you contact us and join us again next time for another broadcast of Way of Grace with Pastor Jesse Gastan. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.